Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 62 of the Uncovered Podcast. I'm Behram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. And with me, as always, is Jared Kimber. You can find him everywhere. This show leans in hard on data and technology. So we are proud to work with HCL Tech, leaders in their field. So, first thing we're going to talk about today is Bangladesh versus New Zealand. And New Zealand have defeated Bangladesh in a low-scoring thriller at Mirpur. They've leveled the two-match series 1-1. And that's all great, and we'll talk about the game. But before, I want to talk about Mushfiqur Rahim handling the ball. And Jared, it's mm-hmm. like Bangladesh have taken up the responsibility to show us all kinds of dismissals in cricket, right? They monkeyed East Sodhi and called him back. That's where it all started. And after that, they timed Angelo Matthews out. And now Mushfiqur Rahim has been given out obstructing the field, which now comes under, or well, handling the ball comes under uh, obstructing the field, is it? But it was his 88th test match. Just want to put that out there. Uh, No, I think it's important, as you said, that they're they're getting us to actually learn about these laws. Because I think most people thought it was handling the ball, which is what it was for, you know, 150 years, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, it was changed to obstructing the field. Uh, there's no reason to ever pick up the balls, batter. I don't, even when the ball is still and on your crease, when batters go to pick it up, I feel very uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I don't think they know that they could be given out at that stage. And if you ever listen to me on Talk Sport, you will hear me routinely say, do not pick up the ball. Do not pick up the ball. I did on Cricket uh, cricket 8 as well. I think in the World Cup, someone picked up the ball. Um, there's a few different reasons for this as well. So traditionally, of course, uh, that that law is just there because uh, you know you're supposed to use your bat or your body. Um, you know, using your hands is uh, not not how we 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 play in cricket, and so that law was there. But of recent times, the the reason it hasn't disappeared really is more to do with the fact that um, uh, when when players start up, uh, players now will pick up the ball when it's reversing. Mm. And the reason that they do that is because their wet glove will affect the ball, they believe, and stop it reversing and everything else. But also, there should be a challenge. I don't, you know, if you've ever hit a ball back towards your stumps, your first instinct is to pick it up. It's actually really cool when you sort of, you can see a batter sometimes, think they're going to pick it up, then they try and whack it away or or whatever else um, uh, goes on there. Uh, but yes, no, Bangladesh, absolutely. Maybe, I think the MCC should sponsor them at this point because <laughs> they're probably getting more hits to the MCC mem's, uh, website than anyone ever has just by all this weird stuff that they keep doing. But it's a magnificent moment of career. I love a handle the ball. Handle balls, you know, it's a brilliant dismissal. Um, I love the I love the players who touch it with their hand and then realize they've done it wrong. 
I even love it when a when a player whacks a ball back onto their stumps when they're trying to save it. All those sorts of little um, uh, smaller ones, I think, are really quite interesting um, uh, there. I think this is, again, going to be a dismissal, not because of this one, but I think it's a dismissal we might see slightly more of in the next couple of years uh, when teams are trying to make a point, a little bit more like what we saw with the timed out with Angelo Matthews. So it's not your ball. It's our ball. We will come and pick it up. If you want to whack it along the ground to us, that's more than fine. Um, don't touch the ball. This one was a little bit more of, uh, what, what would you say, more of a traditional one. Although the ball wasn't that close to the stumps, was it? Hmm. It wasn't at all. And uh, Alexander Cockburn in the comments has actually pointed out that Barber tried to do that as well. Yeah, he was at the non-striker's end and he tried to catch the ball. I don't know what was going on over there. But I do agree with you uh, in the sense that we see this far too often that the ball has died and the batter has just lobbed it up, you know, handling the ball and uh, gives it back to the bowler or some of the opposition players. And I've always found that weird. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how Bangladesh is at the help of all these things. And mm. uh, surely, surely they deserve some praise for it, right? <laughs> oh, without doubt. I mean, look, it's it's a remarkable thing, um, you know, when, when you have a look at how weird their recent history has been, right? Like, they're, <laughs> they're entertaining us on a, on a whole other level. Um, you know, uh, Sri Lankan cricket and Pakistan cricket have their own melodramas playing out. It's not as much fun as what Bangladesh are doing on the field, right? Um, not right now. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've played cricket. Sometimes when you hit the ball into the ground and you don't know where it is, I think you automatically start to panic a little bit, right? Or even if you've hit the ball into the ground, you know it's going roughly towards the stumps. Again, you start to panic a little bit in a way that you don't when a 90-mile-an-hour ball is bowled to you, although you and I would, but a normal professional won't, won't, won't worry about that. And, and it does mess with people's uh, minds. So, you know, you could see this. Um, I, think the one that, I think the one that tricks people the most is usually the one when you hit it down into the ground quite hard and it bounces up. And you're, you're not trained to look for that. And so you're sort of looking around. And then when you see the ball, you see the big bear paw come across. I think Graham Gooch is maybe the most perfect example of that. Although that's kind of what um, Mushfika does here. Again, isn't it? It... it, it um, r- remind me, hits it into the ground, doesn't it? It bounces up a little bit. Is that what happened? I think so. I can't quite recall the, the dismissal anymore. But I did see a video and it was quite bizarre looking. And I'm just glad that they didn't bring the whole spirit of cricket discourse into this. Like, I'm glad we missed out on that this time. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that would have been great as well. But yeah, <laughs> so, so, so the, the point is that you do get into a point. You do get into a, like a weird sort of mindset um, when the ball is doing something that is not that it not that it doesn't traditionally do. I suppose is the best way of putting it. And you know, you it makes you panic a little bit. And um, it is it's a it's a weird. I don't I don't even know how to point it out, but it, it's a weird thing. So I'm just trying to bring up the photo. So he, yeah, he knocks it into the ground. So it's very similar to the Graham Gooch one I'm talking about. And generally when the batter does this, these are the ones that's a bit tricky. So if the ball is on the ground and it's spinning, so that's the other big one, right? They're, they're the two most common handle uh, obstructing the field uh, type situations is you knock the ball straight into the ground it comes up in, in the air a little bit. Or you're facing a fastball or a spinner, the ball hits your bat, it hits the ground and starts to spin back along the ground, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um when the ball spins back along the ground, it's very easy for the batter to just whack it away with the bat or to put their foot in the way. That mm-hmm. bouncing in the air is that – I don't know how to explain this, but if, if you've ever played cricket, you'll understand what I mean. It's suddenly on a different plane, right? Yeah. 
It's not coming at you. It's not rolling on the ground, all the normal things. And the interesting thing with, with Mushfika, with this particular one, is when the ball hits his hand, I'll just try and bring it up again. I had it like two seconds ago. When the ball hits his hand, it's like a meter away, but he's already got that panic in. And so he reaches for it. And I think it was Kyle Jameson, I think, was the bowler, right? Except yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he did this once before as well, as someone pointed out in the comments. It wasn't his first attempt in the same game. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. And and also, teams are usually, you, you do see obstructing the field, happen, or let's call it handling the ball, because that's the subsection of what this, this one is. Yeah. You do see sometimes when a player is um, doing this, the bowling team doesn't know whether to appeal or not. It's interesting how quickly Jameson and New Zealand go up for this particular. Like they are all instantaneously. And yet, I think if this was an England batter, I think there would be a small subsection, not as much as some of the other things we've seen recently, but I think it would be a small <laughs> subsection of going, well, the ball wasn't going back onto the stumps anyway, which is absolutely true. But again, that's not what this means. You, uh, It could have gone back. We don't know what it would have done. It could have hit a tweak and gone back. It could have spun back on the second bounce, whatever. There's just no reason to do it. But as I said, as you hit the ball into the ground, it just kind of fries your brain a little bit. And next thing you know, off you go. Yeah, I mean, let's not blink, bring England into this conversation. They were miffed about uh, Johnny Bastow getting stumped off a fast, fast bowler, right? So uh, there's a whole another different layer to that. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to some of the people in the comments before we move on. Mm-hmm. Chris Matt is here. Alexander Cockburn, of course. DM says we're always late. You're right. We always are. And today we are trying a new sort of setting or channel or something yeah. of the sort. It's so also worth things. remembering we're not a TV show. Like hmm. we're not we're not going to be on like on the hour. It's always it, it's it's just more of a serving suggestion than a, than a hardcore um, time. We've also got uh, Rohan Raya Maji who says this is the best discussion on cricket. Hell yes, it is. We will keep it up. And Carl Wells and Doctor Daywalker are here as well. Anyway, coming to the game. Golden boy, Glenn Phillips, you know, he Mm. made this test match his very own. He scored 87 and then an unbeaten 40 in the second innings. That's 127 runs out of 635, which was scored in this test match. And the next best score after his 87 was Zakir Hassan's 59. No other batter crossed 50. And just the fact that Glenn Phillips also took three wickets in this game and ended this series as the leading run scorer and third highest wicket taker really tells you that he's here to play this format as well. And he's an all format asset. Look, I mean, he's in a, he's obviously got the talent to play test cricket. I think they probably have an advantage with him in that Tom Bundle is batting well enough. He can bat at number six, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if you don't have a wicket keeper you're batting number six, do you want Glenn Phillips to be your number six? Not Long term, you might, you know, you hope he develops into that level of player. But in the short term, you might be thinking to yourself, is it worth getting him to play at number six right at the moment? So, yeah, I do think that is uh, quite interesting uh, from that point of view. So that allows him a little bit of flexibility. The bowling, I mean, I don't know what to say about the bowling. I mean, he, you know, he can. I was watching Will Jacks the other day. I know this is, you know, we'll be talking about this this series in a little bit. But I was watching Will Jacks the other day and Will Jacks, I think the first ODIs he played, he was bowling half trackers and full tosses everywhere. And then the second ODIs he was playing, he was bowling like this tall off spin, drifting in, turning and bouncing away. And, and, and people get really excited when they see a part-timer do that. But you have to remember that the game before, he was bowling half trackers and full tosses. And Glenn Phillips is still in that that zone, right? Like who knows what he will develop into and people develop differently and, and everything else. But when he gets it right, he bowls a good off spinning delivery. And... But the one thing I would say is 
when certainly about 10 or 15 years ago, so when you were growing up, a lot of guys who bowled off spin kind of bowled darts or rollers, mm-hmm. right? So if they were a part-timer, they would come in and they bowl that sort of David Hussey thing where they just, you know, put their hand around a little bit, Darren Lehman style. You look at a lot of the part-timers in the world now, you know, Ratchet Ravindra is a perfect mm-hmm. example. Uh, Glenn Phillips uh, is another one. Will Jacks we just talked about. Uh, they are literally trying to rip that ball mm-hmm. and they're trying to bowl proper off spin. And that's because the rollers eventually got kind of, you know, uh, worked out a little bit by by batters and, and, and everything else. And so you are now seeing a part-timers come in and they actually do, you know, genuinely bowl finger spin. That comes with advantages and disadvantages because sometimes they, you know, will bowl an absolutely horrendous ball. But there is no doubt that um, that Glenn Phillips's best ball can cause problems for people. Uh, and again, having a player like him, who's you know, how much, how you know, there's no practice between these World Cup and this Test series, right? And yet we all know that Glenn Phillips is probably in the nets more than the New Zealand bowlers trying mm-hmm. to work on his finger spin and. What did he take in the first test? Six wickets, was it? I think it was five. Five wickets, yeah. Eight wickets for a bloke who's in the team to bat. I mean, you would take that any day of the week. And yes, we know finger spin helps, you know, Bangladesh conditions and blah, blah, blah. We get all that. No one's disagreeing with any of that. We're not We're not saying he's about to go back and be the leading wicket taker in New Zealand in yeah. their home series. But what we're saying is, again, this is a guy who works on his craft, um, you know, puts time and effort into everything. And his best ball is handy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just the fact that clearly New Zealand value him as a batting all-rounder ahead of Rachin Ravindra in these conditions, that also tells you the story. And it's interesting how we did a podcast on Moin not long ago, Moin Ali. And that's basically his trade. Go for that magic ball and you will ball a lot, a lot of rubbish in between. And I think mm-hmm. Glenn Phillips can certainly take some inspiration from Moin Ali, who I, I, I suppose a lot of people would consider a genuine all-rounder, right? Not a batting all-rounder. Um, so anyway, moving forward, and of course, we're talking about spinners. Another reason why New Zealand won this game was because left-arm offie, Jaz Patel, took eight wickets in this test. And that includes a six for in the second innings. Four wickets short of what we expect of him, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let himself down there a little bit. Look, he's a bat. Look, I think, did he play for Durham or something? Random uh, recently played some county cricket up north, Yorkshire, somewhere. Uh, let's see if I can bring that up really quickly. It was after that I've realized it was Glamorgan he played for, um, which is not in the north at all. But <laughs> look, he's a good bowler. His issue really is that I don't think he has any great skills when it comes to bowling away from Asian conditions, which is it's really interesting because. We are now seeing, you know, guys like him and Matt Kuhneman coming through from, you know, uh, non-traditional sort of um, spinning places where they are very, like if you look more traditionally at Shane Warne's sometimes struggled in India, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you you then have um, Nathan Lyon is another good example of that. Of It wasn't always a given that your spinner at home would be able to go and go to Asia and do very well in those sorts of conditions. What we are now seeing is what I always thought should be the case is you kind of want two spinners, right? You want a spinner who can bowl in the West and you want a spinner who can bowl in Asia, right? And I use the West very broadly or what will they call it? Center. That, that's the big. That's, that's what they call it. Yeah. The fun term that came out of, of Twitter a couple of years ago, right? So um, you really do want two different kinds of spinners. And, you know, you look at someone like Todd Murphy, 
Todd Murphy is obviously going to do okay in Asia. No one's saying he's not. But Todd Murphy can probably play in Australia, and we've already seen him play in England, and, you know, he will be fine. Matt Kuhneman probably not going to be able to bowl anywhere else. And AJS Patel at the moment looks a little bit like that. You know, he's 35 years old. For whatever reason, he hasn't developed all those other skills uh, when needed. But in Asian conditions, players like him and Jack Leach are just almost unplayable at their best, especially with, you know, DRS and the way that people have to play spin now. And I hear so many things about, oh, you know, uh, the way people play spin so much worse. Well, the old guys didn't have to worry about everything being LBW, right? And uh, the fact that spinners attack the stumps and are a lot more direct now because of all those things. Um, and a bowler like him at his best should be very, very hard to play. But I would say the important thing is that doesn't mean that he disappears. You keep him around your camp. You you keep training. You keep upskilling him and everything else. If he can become an all-surfaces spinner, that's better for you. But if he doesn't, you don't want to be in the situation. Australia, do you, do you remember a cricketer called Gavin Robertson? No. Gavin Robertson played for Australia as an off-spinner. And literally, like, he would either be playing for Australia or playing club cricket. There was almost mm-hmm. no middle ground. New South Wales didn't want him, right? Like, you know, he, he was he, – and he was clearly a very good spinner in Asian conditions. But they didn't play him on every Asian tour. They just played him on the ones where they thought they needed an extra spinner and someone else wasn't available. And it's like, well, how did Gavin Robertson get better at that role? Whereas I know now for a fact that Australia and, – and, and New Zealand with Ajaz Patel, but Australia with Matt Kuhneman and Ajaz Patel, and Jack Leach is another one of thinking – well, how can we upskill them so that maybe we can use them other places? Okay, let's say we don't do that and they end up just as completely as a one-dimensional bowler. Let's make sure that they feel like they're still very much a normal part of the team and every time we go to Asia, they're on that tour, they're a big chance of playing games. Whereas in the old days, especially the Western teams, they would like pick who which, whichever finger spinner was like kind of vibing at that time and throw <laughs> them into Asia. That's not the best way to do it. There are certain finger spinners who are more suited to those conditions and certain ones who aren't, right? And and I think AJ Patel, they have a perfect example of a player like that. Yeah, I mean, I think New Zealand also do a fantastic job of managing their players and resources. I mean, yeah. the first time I saw Jaz Patel, he did quite well versus Pakistan. I reckon that was in the UAE. And it's been some time since then, right? Mm. I mean... Uh, Asad Shafiq used to play for Pakistan back then. And uh, yeah, that was his first claim to fame. And now we take his name in the same breath as Jim Laker and Anil Kumble. So I'll leave it at that. Of course, uh, there's more drama that happened over here. Tim Saudi, New Zealand skipper, he was quite vocal about the Mirpur pitch, saying it was the worst he had ever played on. And uh, I just want to ask you, Jared, what do you make of uh, rank turners or surfaces which deteriorate from the word go? Because they most certainly polarize opinion across the cricketing globe. And I just feel that wickets which favor pace bowling don't get the same kind of bad PR, you know? Yeah, look, I've done a lot of this before. The truth is that a pitch that fa- uh, that, that helps fast bowling will probably eventually even out, right? Mm. And eventually the batters will get back on top or they're all out because, you know, they haven't been able to handle it. But more often than not, it will even out. The problem with pitches that deteriorate for spinners from the start is they don't usually even out, right? They mm-hmm. usually get tougher to battle. So if you have a if you have a pitch that massively favours spinners on the morning of day one, unless it's just conditions-based and, you know, the, uh, balls doing something weird or whatever. But generally, if you have a pitch like that, by the middle of day three, it should be fairly unplayable. Right. Hmm. That's not always the case. If you get a green seamer in, let's say, New Zealand, what Saudi's talking about, um, by day three, it might actually be really flat. 
right? It may not be doing anything for the seamers anymore. The other thing with, with seamers is we usually conflate swing and seam. And while, while putting grass on a pitch helps swing, it's not actually 100% why the ball swings. And, you know, there are many other uh, factors to those sort of things where the ball keeps in. So a, lo a lot of times you'll see like a, a team will be bowled out in two days on, on, a, on a green pitch and everyone will be like, oh, see, no one has a go with that when it's when it's a spin ball. And but yeah, but all the wickets felt to swing, like I mean, the ball swings in the air, not off the pitch. All those things having been, having been said, there is certainly a bias against spinning pitches because this has been an Anglo-Saxon game, right? Like mm -hmm. England and Australia had that. And if you look at what, what has actually happened is traditionally – the ball did spin a lot in Australia and England. And so that wasn't as much of a factor. Then when covered wickets come in, you don't have those uncovered, um, you know, glue pot E wickets anymore. And so from 1960s onwards, spinners are far less important in Australia and um, England than they used to be. South Africa is probably another country as well. You know, like the, the history of, of those three nations is largely built on, on spinners as much as seamers. Like, you know, Australia had... Uh, Tiger Bill O'Reilly and Clara Grimmett in the same side um, that quite often, you know, had multiple spin options available to them. As that changed to being seam dependent, they complained, right? But if also, if you go through the history of cricket, every time there's been a change, people have complained. People complained when the West Indies uh, bowled too fast. Uh, you know, people, people complained, uh, you know, about baseball. People complained about reverse swing. Uh, people complain about the Australian sledging. Like all those changes happen, and this is another one of those, right? Mm. The only thing I would say is just from a cricket point of view is you probably want a pitch that has something for multiple people. So, mm -hmm. so when Kookaburra changed their ball, right, they changed it because they thought the ball was too good for batters, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was done in secrecy and all that sort of nonsense. And we parked that for a minute. But it was basically done because they thought that the Dukes was getting better PR because Dukes was producing more entertaining cricket because it was keeping bowlers and batters in the game. That's a, a separate issue. But what my point being is when cricket is at its best, spin bowlers can take wickets, seam bowlers can take wickets, and batters can make some runs, right? I, I still prefer a test match over in two days, and I like it when batters can't face anything. But I understand that that is unsustainable as a business model going forward. Um, and I like it when those tests are rare, right? I think the thought process is, and we've seen a few wickets like this of recent times, when it's so weighted to one particular skill set that mm -hmm. even Rohit Sharma can't make any runs, right? You know, that Chiteshwar Pajara, Chiteshwar Pajara is no, no longer a golden god against spin, right? Mm -hmm. And the difference is that in... It, he hasn't forgotten how to play spin. So India have changed their wickets and he has had to change how he bats against spin. And I think that if you were really making an argument for that, I think you would say that that's probably gone a little bit too far. But home teams are going to do, do home team things. I still believe one day all the test matches will be, uh, all, the, all the international pitches should be uh, looked in by the ICC, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, you know, I've talked about that before. But we're not there at the moment. And so we are in this situation where there is a change in the guard. This is going from being a Western sport to an Asian sport. We all know that these pitches sometimes happen in Asia. I mean, what are you supposed to do to stop the ball spinning in Sri Lanka? Put ice on the pitch, right? Like <laughs> there are certain grounds you just can't stop the ball doing this. However, there are also situations when the pitches are doctored to make it even for both sides. The hilarious thing about this is, and I've said this before, and I've said this with India, were Bangladesh not better when the pitch was a little bit more even 
Mm-hmm. If you, when you start to doctor pitches to this side, you bring in random results. Yeah. This was a random test match. It was a fascinating, mm-hmm. low scoring, tense test match, but it was more random because of the pitch. Yeah, it and definitely bit Bangladesh at the back. And uh, I think you make a fantastic point when you say that pitches shouldn't be curated to just suit one kind of skill set because then the game is monotonous. And also the point where you said that fast bowling tracks will even out at some point. The pitches that I don't enjoy watching cricket on, are, well, the Rawalpindi pitch, because you know it's you know barely going to ever get a result unless bass ball is happening over there. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, you have... Uh, Test matches that end in like two days, which I'm also not a fan of. You're kind of robbing fans of that experience, you know, where the game ebbs and flows. And over here, it's just survival. So from a personal standpoint, I'm not a fan of these sort of pitches. But speaking of dangerous pitches, right? Of course, uh, that's also one of the reasons why oh, yeah. pitches get flagged. Uh, and this is a natural segue now, even though the time wasn't hadn't arrived for this particular segment. But there was one in the Big Bash League recently uh, when the Renegades took on the Perth Scorchers at Geelong. And after 6.5 overs of variable bounce and Josh Inglis getting hit in the nuts, effectively, uh, the game was called off because the pitch was deemed unsafe. Now, that's yeah. not particularly a great look for the Big Bash League, which already I felt was on the wane because of other leagues that have uh, come up in the world. And this is quite unfair on the fans as well. People paid money for this game. Yeah. Uh, you know, the broadcasters, I think Fox went crazy, didn't they, on air? If, um, some, I haven't seen the clips, but um, by crazy, I mean, quite often now we get a lot of commentators don't usually attack the people who are paying them. Uh, sorry, not the people who are paying them. Commentators don't usually attack the boards because they have this symbiotic relationship. And it felt like that wasn't quite the case. Um it was an outground as well. So it was Cadinia Park, which is uh, you know, a famous AFL ground. I think we had the World Cup there um, uh, not that long ago as well. So it ha- I, don't want, I don't want to say it never gets major cricket. It's had big bash games before Australia played Sri Lanka there a couple of years ago. But it's not the MCG or Docklands mm-hmm. or anything else, which also is quite funny because it was Melbourne Renegades' home game and they actually have a ground uh, that could have stopped the rain. But that- mm-hmm. <laughs> let's go away from that. There were faulty covers. At, at a certain point, uh, when you have uh, faulty covers and you're not a major venue and you're not getting stuff all, all year round, whose fault is it? It's probably the big national organisers rather than mm-hmm. the local authorities um, in that kind of way. Funnily enough, we're talking about the uh, – like that's an unsafe wicket. If you were – if Neil Harvey was still making comments about cricket, I think Neil Harvey would be quite right to say, well, I had to play – I had to face Wes Hall on a wicket like that. Hmm. Right, I had to face Fred Truman and and you know and and um and Typhoon Tyson on a wicket like that before, right? And they would be right, and it tells you how much cricket has changed. That we used to play on wickets like that. Now bowlers were slower. Uh, you know, there there are many different other things there. But the truth is that that wasn't always in cricket considered an unsafe pitch. Um, but yeah, I don't, have you? Did you play cricket on turf wickets? No, never. Yeah, so so I've turf, played a lot of tape ball cricket on matted surfaces, but that doesn't count. No, no. So, so it's really interesting. The, the what it does is it is actually it's like turning a cricket ball into a tennis ball. Mm. So the ball does bounce really, really steeply. So when you talk about was it English who got hit the nuts? One of yeah. the Joshes was it? Yeah. Um, it really does come straight up. I remember playing in a game where this guy bowled a short ball down the leg side, and I was sort of a bit slow to act to it and then suddenly 
when I turned around, the ball was still there. It was like hovering. <laughs> so I just like tried to whack it away. It, it's not like other cricket. You you can eventually get used to it, but those first few deliveries you face are horrendous. Mm. And you know, Don Bradman, who unarguably is one of the greatest players of all time, could not work out those wickets at all, right? And yeah. uh, Victor Trumper actually went the other way, and he used to wet wickets on purpose to practice on them. Mm. And he was considered a great wicket, wicket player. But I just find it really funny that we've gone from there to a point where it's now it's unsafe to play on. Um, but ha- having played on wet wickets before, I would actually argue that if you're facing, um, uh, you know, if, if you are facing a um, 90 mile an hour bowler when the ball is going to bounce in a particularly weird way, um, it is uh, it's not it's not particularly safe. And 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 look, we've seen this with other wickets too, haven't we? Um, I just found that I, I suppose what I thought was interesting is that they still tried to play on it. Yeah. Um, uh, and and also, and this is I don't know how I don't know how the big bash is is working, but I it was Perth that came over, right? Yes. Yeah, it was so. Why should Perth? not get the full points on that game if the opposite if the opposition couldn't actually do a safe pitch am i is that, am i being unfair there man do you, you understand what i'm saying right it is the renegade renegades have chosen an outground that outground didn't have fully professional facilities an mm-hmm. error happened that's all fine it's a long way from perth to, to geelong is all i'm gonna yeah. say and you now don't have the chance to win that game because the opposition didn't make that anyway i thought i thought the whole thing was really really interesting um and uh, as you said, the Big Bash is, I, I mean, the way we talk about the Big Bash is very different than in Australia, right? I don't know. Hardcore cricket fans around the world are probably pushing the Big Bash down. Whether that means that Australian audiences are not as interested, because that's actually where they're going to make their money, right? But it doesn't really matter if, I don't know, who was I watching? You know, if Mujib is, oh, well, I mean, Quentin de Kock was in this game, I think, as well. Uh, yes. But, you know, there's still enough international players playing um, for it to be um, uh, thought of as a high level quality thing. But I think as, as global, excuse me, as global cricket fans, I think sometimes we're like, Oh, the big bash is no longer important. Yeah. But the big bash was really never going to be a huge hit in London or um, Lahore. Right. Like the idea of the big bash is that local fans are watching it all the time and that it works. Mm. That's kind of what it has to do. But, yeah, from a global position, it's certainly not what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I think from a global position or, well, lens, people probably look at the fact that Australia's stars don't feature all too regularly in this league. And that's probably what is the tipping point. But I still enjoy it. And my man, Harris Rauf, is now finally going to play for the Melbourne Stars again. So I'll be keeping a close watch. Alexander Cockburn has a really funny comment over here. He says, Rahul Pindi pitch turned me into a flat earther. I get it. I definitely feel your pain. Just, just on that, you were talking about that before. So the wickets that I hate the most, and this is why I think I don't hate the spinning wickets because I love that it changes the dynamics of the game a little bit. The yeah. wickets I hate the most are the Royal Pindu pitches. If you go through my mm-hmm. running, you always see me sliding on flat pitches. I just because I just lose interest in the game, right? Yeah. But the other ones I really don't like are when when batters can't play their shots. And I don't mean that because the ball's seeming or spinning too much. I literally mean that the pace of the pitch means that no one can get the ball onto the bat the way that they want to. You know, so it's just really, really slow, and everyone's trying to play their shots, and it's like they're batting through treacle. Those are the ones I hate. Um, uh, but uh, also, I, I hate pit- pitches that are called off, and you only get was that six or seven overs of cricket? Yeah. On. So- 
I mean, it was clearly dangerous. And uh, I think you made a fantastic point with respect to the Perth Scorchers getting all the points for this. And, you know, JL probably needs to come back as coach and fight that case. I'm sure JL will win. Uh, anyway, we'll take a break at this point. You're watching Uncovered with Behram and Jared. And we'll be back with West Indies versus England. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today. Welcome back to Uncovered with Jared and Bearam. And uh, we've got Craig, Arko and Sukant who have joined us in the comments section. We want to make it a point to give you guys all shout-outs regularly because it means a lot to us that you tune in to watch us live. But anyway, moving on to West Indies versus England. Uh, The West Indies have defeated England in a three-match ODI series at home by a margin of two games to one. And uh, again, before we actually go on to discuss the series and the cricket, I just find it really sad that, you know, they've won a series over here. It's a relevant one because England is obviously one of the bigger teams around or definitely, you know, more important in terms of broadcasting and coverage and all of that. And... This West Indian team, which has shown so much promise, they won't get an opportunity to fight for a spot in the Champions Trophy, which I think is uh, really, you know, unfair. Well, I mean, they're playing really interesting cricket at the moment. Shai Hope has obviously revolutionised himself. Mm. Romario Shepard's doing great work. They're not even using Romario Shepard the right way, and he's still doing really, really well. Um, you know, Al- Alec Athanas... Um, uh, you know, played some good cricket as well. And obviously that brought in the young kid, Matthew Ford, who mm. um, took a bunch of wickets bowling, I don't know, medium fast. Uh, he was a really interesting prospect as well. So, and then you go, well, yeah. so I've been on with uh, Philo Wallace on TalkSport. We've been commentating it. And Philo just keeps saying to me, but, you know, Yannick, uh, so Yannick Karai is 32, 33, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, the next time the West Indies are a relevant team, He's probably not going to be in their World Cup mm-hmm. spot, right? And that's we're not slagging him off. That isn't to say he shouldn't be playing or anything. But they're now in a position where nothing matters for four years. Yeah, um, and it's a real. It, it just shows you this is why all these people go, "Oh, it's a really good World Cup. We're saving ODI cricket." Well, are, are we? Because what are we going to do for the next <laughs> four years? Mm. Right, like these things really, really matter. And you know, um, I, I look. I thought they played well. Um, uh, all the way through the series, really, even, even in the game they lost, there were there were um, there were some signs. They they fought back, I suppose, in that second game. Um, but yeah, you, you look ahead and you're just like, well, you know, kind of, what's the point? Mm, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned Matthew Ford. Now, the 21 year old right arm pacer, he took three wickets on debut, all power play wickets. He rattled England up top, and you can say that he was one of the main, you know, uh, proponents or, or people responsible. Uh, for basically wrapping up that series decider for the West Indies. Of course, you were commenting on this series and I watched some highlights as well. Uh, What's your take on this young seamer? He's really interesting because he should be shit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he's tall, but he's not an elite tall ball. He's not Carl Jameson or anywhere near anything like that. He swings the ball, but he swings it back into right-handers. Uh, he's got actually probably a bad wrist position, if we're being honest. Sometimes his wrist doesn't get quite behind the ball. He bowls at about 125 to 128 kilometers, maybe 132 at most. So very medium pace, right? Mm-hmm. He's accurate, but I wouldn't say he's, you know, um, Muhammad Asif or um, Muhammad Abbas or, you know, Vernon Philander levels of accurate. 
But he's got just a little – he can bring the ball back in, but he can also make it seem slightly away at times. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did I find interesting with him? He – he. I know the pitch helped him a little bit with extra bounce, but he yeah. seemed to really get extra bounce from someone who's – I think his release point's about 208 centimetres. So that's well short of your Ollie Robinson, Kyle Jameson, um, Muhammad Afan level. They're all up at around 225, right? Two, mm-hmm. 225 to 230. He's a long way short of that, yet he got the ball to bounce. And I think it's something to do with the in-swing and the way his wrist goes onto the ball. Uh, so he seems to have multiple avenues to taking a wicket. Uh, but, yeah, there seems to be something about him. He's very young. Mm. He needs to be 5 or 10 Ks quicker. He needs to have that Tim Southey jump that Tim Southey had um, at one stage. Mm. It doesn't mean he always has to be bowling at – he doesn't have to bowl at 90 miles an hour. But he has to bowl at at least 85 miles an hour plus. So that 137 to 142 range, he has to eventually get there um, for flat pitches. It's fine on, yeah. on wickets where you have any assistance, but when he doesn't have any assistance. But there's a lot to like about him there. That You know, Casey Carty batted really well in this particular game. Um, Athanas is still can't hit the ball to mid on or mid off. But, you know, I like the way he goes about his game. Shy Hope has revolutionized himself a little bit. Um uh, oh, we haven't talked about Moti, the finger spinner, by mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. I so during the second game, I was watching him bowl when I thought he bowled exceptionally in that second game when they lost. And suddenly I went, I asked Crickviz, and I said, how much does he spin it? It seems like he's spinning the ball just a lot. Every time I watch him, he just seems to spin the ball more than anyone else. And they looked it up. And of all left-arm finger spinners in ODI cricket um, who played, I think it's over 12 games or 300 balls or whatever, whatever metric I asked for, he spins the ball more than anyone else. In, mm. in the Griffiths database. Um, wow. And he's also, he's interesting because he's quite traditional in that he, he oh my God, I'm going to need a cricket ball. Every time I took, take <laughs> it away, I need it back. Oh my God. Picked up a baseball then. Um, <laughs> so most spinners now kind of hold the ball uh, with their fingers across the seam or on on, on the, the smooth bit itself so that the, the players don't get a, a good view of the seam on the way down, right? And also, some, that means sometimes the ball will hit the seam and it will spin violently, and sometimes it will hit the smooth bit and skid through. It's a very common way of bowling now in, in mm-hmm. international cricket. Mo- Moti doesn't do that. He actually bowls traditionally so that he keeps the seam um, traveling on the, like a, I don't know, Jupiter axis, if that makes sense, <laughs> a Saturn axis. Do you know what I mean? That that sort of yeah. angle, I, don't, I can't remember which planet it is, but the planet with the angle, uh, um, a belt around it. Uh, and Saturn. It is definitely Saturday, Saturday. Yeah. yeah. And um, and he, so he keeps it that way. So it's a really traditional way of bowling, um, which, as I said, you don't see a lot of bowlers do now, and yet he's incredibly successful. You know, he's got height, he's got accuracy, obviously he's spinning the ball massively. I'm, I'm very, very impressed by him, and I thought that England would go after him hard. By the end of the series, I think his last game, he might have gone at two and a half, three runs and over or something like something that. Something like that. Yep. Yeah, and I don't think the rest of the bowlers had figures, um, you know, similar to him. And so people are trying to hit him um, and tried to go up. Or sorry, I should say, a team that wanted to hit him and wanted to go after him by the end of the series was doing the opposite against him. Really fascinating player. We need to see him obviously away from the West Indies and you know playing more cricket. I wouldn't, you know, but also he's old. He's like mm. twenty eight and he's hardly played any cricket. Just you know, a, a very very interesting uh, player. And you know, I really want to see him in 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 different situations. 
Yeah, I mean, he's definitely put Akil Hussain out of a job, I suppose, because he's been starting for the West Indies now across formats. And I even really enjoyed him in Test Cricket. He took a seven for not too yeah. long. So, Well, uh, Test Cricket, first... we're not talking in Test Cricket. So who was the seven for against? Was that? Bangladesh, was it? Yeah. No, I think you're right. I can't uh, remember. Yeah. But but I remember when he did that, I would have said, yeah, good Test bowler. I wouldn't have instantly thought it would have come across to ODI uh, bowling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, Akil Hussain is a really good player in Kabat a little bit, so maybe he still keeps his T20 plays. But Moti mm-hmm. just looks like certainly a franchise-level T20 player, and it will be really interesting to see him travelling outside the West Indies and bowling on wickets around the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I feel the same. And the verdict, guys, is a very, very good Akesh Moti. And uh, lots of positive, uh, positives, of course, for the West Indies, as Jared pointed out. Shea Hope scored, uh, you know, bulk runs, which he always does. And he was the top scorer, but at a much higher strike rate this time, which is a very welcome sort of, you know, sign for West Indies cricket. He's even demoted himself in the middle order. And, uh, you know... Other players that you mentioned, Alec Athenes, uh, Romario Shepard, he had a really good one. Sherfain Rutherford is one name that you forgot. I thought he had a really, really good series, as did uh, Casey Carty had a good game last game. And then Moti, we've talked about. So lots of uh, players impressed. And West Indies had a really good series to write home about. Or, well, they were home, so just write about. Um, but then again, all three of Jason Holder, Nicholas Puran and Kyle Mears have denied central contracts mm-hmm. and they've said that they're available for T20I selection. Now, Nicholas Puran was the all, or well, not all format, but limited overs captain of West Indies not too long ago. So his commitment level has gone from that to just available for T20I selection. Kyle Mears was someone who could have been an all format asset. And Jason Holder not being in the West Indian test team is catastrophic, in my opinion. So this is quite a watershed moment maybe in our game going forward? I mean, I suppose it's already happened with West Indies players before, right? So uh, maybe maybe this is the final canary rather than the first canary in the coal mine. But uh, look, if you're Nicholas Puran, he's only playing T20 in ODIs. There's no ODIs, no major ODIs for four years, right? He put everything in to getting them to qualify for the World Cup. Obviously, I think he, he was obviously fine, but they came up short. So, uh, and he was leading leading that side. Kyle Mayers is a late developing player, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, really couldn't bat to his 26, 27, suddenly makes a test double 100, probably still a bit of bowl that a batter um, <laughs> at that point. And, um, we it makes sense that he would try and cash in from a T20 cricket around the world because he will just be able to make a lot more money than he would for being available for the West Indies. And again, mm. maybe he's a fringe test player. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they think of him as an automatic player in 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 test cricket. In one day cricket, again, he was a fringe player. He might just be like, well, what's the point? Holder is the big one, isn't it? You know. Mm. Um, just because we know he was a great test player uh, at, you know, those two or three years when he was on top of the world, he was absolutely fantastic. Um, unfortunately, again, where's he going to make his money? Mm. I mean, if, if we have this unfair playing field out there, it's, it's, I, I always hate the fact that people say, oh, the West Indians are following the money. It's like, well, all players follow the money. Just some players actually get money for playing test cricket still. And some players mm-hmm. don't. Um, Jason Holder's what? 3031? Does that sound right? I mean, I've made Yeah, that does. Then. I mean, he's been around for a while now. He's 32, right? Mm. So he just turned 32. So we're, we're both right. Um, <laughs> and um, 
he's an all-rounder. There's a lot of, uh, you know, he has to put his body through more than a than a specialist player does from that perspective. I can't blame him at that age for doing that. But also, like, look at where West Indies test cricket is. Like, mm-hmm. we, we go back to the Puran thing. At least Puran knows in four years' time they are going to be playing for a World Cup, mm-hmm. right? So maybe in two years' time or two and a half years' time, he goes, hey, guys, I'd like to play some one days again. Hmm? What is the point of Jason Holder playing one day, is, uh, playing test cricket anymore? They're not going to make the World Test Championship final. They don't get a lot of test matches anyway. He's going to have to do an incredible amount of work with bat and ball to even keep his team relevant at times. Yeah. And he's 32. I don't know. I, I that That's where I find it very hard. Maybe if there was two divisions, that's slightly different. Or if there was a financial reason for him to play in test cricket. But without those, I just don't know why we expect these guys to keep doing that. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's like you know, there are all these people who, who become soldiers around the world and we talk about patriotism and all that, but we forget that the vast majority of people who decide to be soldiers do it for financial reasons because they uh-huh. actually need the money. And pro- these are professional athletes. And uh, Gideon Haig wrote a piece today and he was talking about um, Sid Barnes writing a column, in, I think it was in the 1950s or 1960s, mm-hmm. about how the Australian players were going to get a £100 bonus if they won the Ashes or something like that. And Sid Barnes going, wait a minute. Uh, uh, your board of control of Cricket Australia is going to make um, 80,000 pounds from this tour. And we're happy that these players are getting 100 pounds each uh, mm-hmm. as a bonus, right? This is nothing, none of, none of this is new, right? It, it's the same thing going on over and over again. And the difference now is that there is a, there is a legitimate path for a player like Jason Holder to make a lot of money longer into his career by just following what he wants to follow. And I find it hard to like look down on someone like that. Who who is going to look at Jason Holder and say that he didn't try his absolute best for West Indies across mm-hmm. multiple formats in terrible teams, captain them even when he probably didn't want to? You know, he did what he had to do, and now he, you know, is probably thinking about how many more years he can earn at the top level. Yeah, and a lot of people, to everyone actually, who goes on and blames the players in these sort of situations. We did a podcast, Jared and I, not too long ago, in which we spoke about Glenn Turner, the New Zealand opener, and how he, back in the day, opted for county cricket over New Zealand because, you know, all of the New Zealand cricketers were amateurs and he wanted a bigger paycheck and he missed out on what, Jared? Was it six years or four years of test cricket? And this yeah. is a guy who averaged nearly 50, right? Or in the 40s at the very least. Uh, as a test yeah, I think he, I think he missed his peak years. I think it was around six years in total. Like, yeah. you know, it, it it's been going on for a long time, and it's 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 really obvious to me now how many people from the major nations still keep going on about this. Oh, they don't want to play for their country and everything else. Mm-hmm. These guys want to play for their. If you said to Jason Holder, you can make the exact same amount of money playing for Rajasthan mm-hmm. as you can from the West Indies. He's just picking the West Indies. Like, no one mm-hmm. doesn't believe that. Right, unless yeah. he hates someone in the West Indies, and it's a personal thing, right? Everyone thinks if the money was exactly the same in both, and you could tell by what the Australian cricketers do, right? They quite often don't choose to go and play in the IPL because they make an absolute fortune from yeah. Cricket Australia, who are paying them a subsidy. They're paying them extra at times to make sure that they can control them, right? Mm-hmm. No one else can afford to do that, and so we're yeah. in this situation, right? And and lambasting the players when realistically it's the structure of the game that's an issue Mm -hmm. and that we didn't move it forward and we didn't do smart things. All those people who go on and on about 
how much they love bilateral cricket. They hate me moaning about, you know, leagues and all this other stuff. That's why Jason Holder doesn't get any money. If bilateral cricket was done correctly under the ICC, that that um, West Indies would players would be paid a lot more money because every TV rights deal would be split in half, not just the ones when they're at uh, At the moment, you only get money from your home market. And if your home market is tiny, it doesn't have a good TV or streaming revenue system, there's almost nothing you can do to pay your players the same amount of money that other countries do. It's yeah. That's just the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so think twice before you, you know, go off and, uh, I don't know, start swearing at some player for choosing a league over their country. Just like, you know, uh, Jared's monologue over here stated, the game isn't equitable at the international level. So in order for your perfect world to exist, the game needs to be equitable at the international level. And we don't see that happening anyway, and that'll probably require a whole separate podcast. But coming back to the series... Um, we spoke of Sam Curran in the last podcast. Of course, he went for like 98 and 10 overs in that last, oh, well, first ODI. Came back strong in the second, took three power play wickets. And I just don't know what to make of him. You know, he was a good death bowler in the T20 World Cup. He took three power play wickets over here, went for 98 uh, in the previous game and had a shit IPL with ball in hand. Mm. Is the jury still out yet on Sam Curran, the limited overs bowler? He's up. A really interesting player. We we did a whole special with him during TalkSport um, with me, my, uh, Mark Butcher and Steve Harmison. And I think he's a player you kind of have to build a team around, which is why I thought he was at his best with Chennai because we, at Chennai, they didn't really expect him to bowl at the death. And at Chennai, they, they had a team where he could bat, but bat in situations that helped him. The problem for England at the moment is... Uh, He's not good enough to bat at number seven internationally, probably. And if he is, it's just, right? Like he's just holding on as a number seven. He certainly can't bat at number six, which means that he doesn't actually help the balance of England's side all that mm-hmm. much. Then if he's not going to bat at number six, he has to bowl his full 10 overs, whether at, at probably at number seven, certainly at number eight. But in order to bowl his full 10 overs, he's not actually suited to all the different parts of the innings. He's a fantastic new ball bowler. He's had times when he's bowled well at the death. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I looked up his numbers. uh, I think Crickfizz gave me these, that he's got a higher economy rate in one-day internationals bowling his slow balls than he does in T20. That's simply unheard of. And the Mm -hmm. difference is in T20, you are trying to bash him for six and mm-hmm. so occasionally, you know, because he, he puts a lot of um, overspin on his on his back of the handball and his cutters can be quite good, he gets them, occasionally people to squish them up in the air when they're trying to overhit them. In one-day cricket, you can milk him. And mm-hmm. teams are milking his slow ball. They're waiting for it now. So obvious in that 98 game that West Indies were like, well, he's going to bowl a slow ball any moment now. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows he's going to bowl wide Yorkers. So Romario Shepard's standing a foot outside of stump just going, mm-hmm. okay. You do that. And if you bowl at my stumps, I back myself to be able to hit the ball away and still get it for four because you're not that quick. Having said all that, he's still a fascinating long-term white ball player, mm-hmm. whether it be IPL, whether it be for England, because there aren't that many players in the world that have, and you can put fielding in as well, it's quite a good fielder as well, you know, those mm-hmm. three skills. Um, he can take wickets with the new ball. He certainly can hit the ball and, and occasionally will play a brilliant innings for you, even if he's not a consistent scorer. Yeah. But if you look back at that glory day of, of, of the glory days of England's, you know, white ball setup, they had Wokes, they had Moen Alley, 
They sometimes had Joe Root and they had Ben Stokes. They had four guys with all little bits of all-round talent that could fit together. So it didn't matter if Mo and Ali didn't bowl his full 10. It didn't matter that Ben Stokes was never going to bowl his full 10. It didn't matter that Chris Wokes, um, you know, is can't flay spin, right? Mm-hmm. All these little, all these different things that these players have. Because there was overlap and there was, and you would use the player that would work on that particular day in the way that you wanted them to work. The problem now is that England are losing all those all-round talents, mm. right? And they're down to Sam Curran being on his own. I thought Sam Curran was at, at his best as a white ball player. At, forget Surrey, which mm. does have a lot of all-rounds as well, which also helps with him. But I thought he was at his absolute best as white ball player for Chennai when they had Moen Ali and Ravi Jadeja there. Mm. And like they literally have three players who can all bat in the top seven, who can all bat in slightly different ways, and who of which you only need to get eight overs out of, and chances are you're going to be able to get three overs out of Curran in most games up front, and then you only need five overs out of Moinelli and Jadeja. And then the days when Curran is getting smashed, you only need six overs out of the other two because you're still going to give him a second chance. England now need him to bowl all ten overs, mm-hmm. right? And I just don't know if he has that in him. I don't think his slower ball is good enough. I don't think he's fast enough to, to do anything special. And he's an incredibly smart bowler. So I kind of back him to work it out, but it might mm-hmm. take a while. But realistically, I don't think the issue is Sam Curran. I think the issue is the team constructed around him, mm. which just isn't the same as it used to be. It's fantastic how we used to look at England as this team with fantastic batting depth, and yet it's the bowling depth that's coming to haunt them now in particular, right? Especially their style. Chris Matt asked this question a bunch of times in the comments and then finally paid for a super chat. And yes, of course, we'll take this question for you, Chris. Thanks for the money. Why is Western Australia producing so many young talents like Green, Richardson, Hardy, Morris, I don't know the last guy, compared to New South Wales or other regions? Um... I think there's been, if I'm not mistaken, there's been a population boom in, in Western Australia over the last few years. Um, so I think that is probably a big part of the reason why they have more players. Um, you know, when when I grew up, um, Perth wasn't particularly a big city. Um, and it certainly um, uh, has got a lot bigger now. Um, you know, I'm trying to have a look. What is it? Current metro population of Perth is 2 million uh, people. Um and I think if you go back, uh, population in 1980 um, was less than a million, mm. right? So that's a mu- it was a small town. The other thing is that in the old days, and, and, and I don't know how many people know about Western Australian cricket, but Western Australia had two problems. Um, one was they were not a first-class team until mm. the mid-60s, okay. right? So there's probably heaps of talented Western Australian cricketers that never even played for Australia. Um, the second is that the selectors were coming from, like, it takes a long time for things to change uh, when it comes to that because who's going to, who's more likely to be this, a selector? It's going to be someone from Victoria or New South Wales, right? Because they have a larger population and they've already got test legends and they've been playing cricket for 150 years. So it takes a long time for Western Australians to get into selection. The other thing is that selection in Australia was completely amateur. Hmm. So why would amateur people, the only time they're seeing Western Australian players is literally when a Western Australian player comes to play against them. So Hmm. if you're from New South Wales, you might see them a handful of times a year, right? At most. Now all the games are on TV, the video, the professionalization, everything else. So I think all those things have played a part. 
What I don't understand is to go through Matt's question. I want to see. I think he missed someone here. Green, Richardson, Hardy. You'll put um, Tim, what's his name? Tim uh, David. Tim David in there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what I'm finding more interesting is you've got Marsh, Green, Hardy, three seam bowling all-rounders. You can even put um, the other guy, uh, Hilton Cartwright, in there as well. Why uh, Western Australia got so many seam bowling all-rounders at the one time is a really, really fascinating one because that I can't answer. I'm not sure. Other than the fact that Western Australians are ginormous, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and they're, you know, uh, built differently to everyone else. Um, have you seen anything of Aaron Hardy? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, he could be an incredible player. <laughs> like, it, it, uh, no, he has got the cushiest role ever now because of Cameron Green, because all the hype went on Cameron Green, and Cameron mm-hmm. Green might never live up to that hype, whereas Aaron Harvey could just come in and have an equally good career as Cameron Green and probably um, be thought of as better. But he's a fantastic player. Jai Richardson is a fantastic player. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, so I do think that a big part of that. The other thing that I would assume is going to start happening a lot more, and I don't know if this is directly um, happening in, in, in Perth at the moment, but I've heard of um, I've heard cricket Australian people talk about this. Is you essentially because of England, Australia had a summer sport, winter sport thing, right? But Perth and Queensland and Northern Territory don't really have seasons. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why you can't play cricket all year round, which happens obviously in in Asian countries already, right? Yeah, that is not the way that cricket has been set up in Australia. It has literally been set. I mean. Aussie rules football was set up to warm up um, cricketers during the winter, <laughs> but that's because of Melbourne, right? Yeah. That is not the case in Queensland when you can play cricket all year round. I wonder if we mo- there might be a bit of a boom from those northern states who can play cricket all year round just because if it's your sport and you hit 15 or 16, you can play season in, season out um, without having to go to England to play or, you know, without having to go to Scotland or Netherlands or, you know, all, all those sorts of things. And you can continue to play at home, stay in your structure and everything else. I'm, I might be wrong with that, but I, again, I, I know there is more winter cricket now being played in those parts of Australia, although Northern Territory always played winter cricket because it's too hot in there summer. But um, so I wonder if all those things are coming to a fore. But, yeah, certainly they were massively overlooked. I, I would say that Western, Western Australians probably have the biggest chip on their shoulder when it comes to selection, but they're completely right, right? And not, not, not every single call because sometimes they go absolutely nuts with it, but they're right historically that, this, that it was an issue. And it's just because... But how far is it to fly from one side of Pakistan to the other? How, how long would you be on a plane? I mean, you'd probably be on the plane for like three hours at best. Yeah. So, I th- you know, Perth to Brisbane is what? Probably five and a half, six hours. Perth mm-hmm. to Hobart's probably six hours. Perth to Melbourne's five, five and a half hours. Mm. Friggin', they, these things, these places should not be in the same country, man. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I just like to add to this, uh, the fact that the Perth Scorchers have been so successful in the Big Bash probably has some sort of role to play over here. And also, you know, uh, every region has its own heroes. And these kids that you've just mentioned had Gilly and Mike Hussey and those sort of guys to look up to. So I think that also factors in at some level. Well, the era, so, I mean, if you look at it, they go from not having a first-class team to having Dennis Lilly within 10 years. Mm. That's such an important thing, right? That is such an important thing. So if it took them 20 or 30 years to have Dennis Lilly, maybe cricket doesn't develop as quickly as it does in WA. They also have fantastically odd pitches where their pitches are more like 
synthetic wickets than most places in the world, right? We've all seen the bounce from the Wacker and, and the Perth Stadium. Their wickets are very different, which means I think their players develop in a slightly different way than other parts yeah. of the world do. And that all, that all that plays a part. Like Bangladesh cricket is like Bangladesh cricket in part because of their wickets, right? Mm-hmm. South Af- And, you know, you look at South Africa. South African bowlers are the way they are because of their wickets. All these things matter. And I do think Western Australia have a very big advantage, especially when it comes to batting and fast bowling over the rest of the world. Sadly, you know, not so much for spin. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, let's go back to the series. And I want to talk about Joss Butler. He got 58 in the second ODI. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it seemed that, you know, Butler was back. But then he bagged a duck in the third. And it's been a catastrophic uh, drop in form for the English skipper. He seems to be, you know, feeling it as well. Look, he looked okay. So, I mean, it was bad, that World Cup, right? Like, I think we all... Is that one of the worst World Cups ever by a true one-day international great player? Like, I'm sure there's some others out there, but I can't think of McGrath or Ghana or, you know, Virat Kohli had one bad World Cup, I think. Hmm. Um, You know, players at that level don't usually have a World Cup that bad, right? I think Kilchrist had one really bad one as well. Hmm. Um, NZ 2003. He was about 100 by then, though, wasn't he? But, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, but whereas it, the Butler thing's interesting. One thing I'll note is that um, Kieran from Crickviz sent me a stat during the ODI series that said that Butler was out playing the short ball 10 times in the first – I think it was the first 10 balls he faced in ODI cricket in the last five years – um, so he'd been dismissed 10 times with the short ball, only five times from full balls and two times from length balls. That's not a normal stat. That's very odd. To a, that means teams are bowling a lot shorter to him earlier on. And I had a look at it. He used to average – well, I think he'd only been dismissed playing uh, the pool shot once um, in the first 10 years of his career or eight years of his career, whatever it was. And in the last five years, he's averaging 22. Wow. So have teams changed their strategy against him? Because it used to be – kind of back of a length, outside off stump, try and get him, you know, pushing, hanging the bat out. And is it now bowling short? And perhaps he's he's doing that. And Philo Wallace was commentating. We were chatting about it. And and I, and I he sort of said to me, do you think it's age? And I went, I don't think it can be because some of this started when he was in peak age, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know what, what, the, what the thing is there. I worry about that more than I do him having a form lapse because that, to me, might suggest it's not a form lapse. And, that, you know, he's still going to go out these normal ways, right? Yeah. But if there is a way to get him out, especially early on in his innings now, that we didn't know about before, and he's only – I could be wrong, but quite often with players, they kind of – not the last to know, but it takes them a while to kind of work out those kinds of trends as well. Um, mm-hmm. That, will that for me, would be a much bigger issue than everything else. But he also played a decent innings in this series, as you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a career arc that we'll all be looking closely at now. But, of course – You'd expect Joss Butler to be back at his devastating best soon. Let's see how long it takes. As for England, Will Jax, Harry Brook and Ben Duckett, they all scored like a 70 each in this series. And Rehan Ahmed's impressed, you know, with the ball. Mm-hmm. I think he can definitely you know, take over the reins from Adil Rashid in this next cycle. But they were still very patchy as a unit, which was a theme that, you know, we saw in the World Cup. And they don't play an ODI until September, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. That's not ideal. <laughs> No. It's really weird, isn't it? Because they've come over here straight away. You know, they've lost the series. They've given some young players a go. Maybe not as many young players as we thought. They experimented mm-hmm. at times. They, they tried some things. And it's just like, all right, well, we'll see you in a few months, right? Like, 
it's you know that, that and and the truth is they're going to have to get good at ODI cricket. In this, this is the world that they live in, right? Yeah, they play too much other cricket. They rest players because they have to, and so how are they going to get good? Occasionally playing little series here and there. Hmm. Anyway, uh, we obviously have still lots to talk about. Jared and I were talking before the show that this is going to be a short one and yet we have this entire segment to go. So we'll be talking about women's cricket and the latest developments over there along with Ireland versus Zimbabwe after this short break. You're watching Uncovered with Jared and Biram. Stay tuned. This show was brought to you by HCL Tech, leaders in data and technology. And you can see their names right there on the sleeve of the Australian team. Welcome back to Uncovered, you with Behram and Jared. And let's move towards the women's cricket arena, Jared. Bangladesh's women, they tied a T20S series in South Africa. So good on them. And Pakistan became the only team other than England, thanks Hypocost for this info, to defeat New Zealand in a T20I series in New Zealand. And uh, Fatma Sana, she got six wickets. Uh, well, both all, all six of those wickets were in the first two games and she gave away only 40 runs in those two games. Got Susie Bates out twice at the Susie Bates Oval. And we've spoke about this a lot. We even touched on it in the previous podcast. But the women's game is getting more competitive. And now we just have more evidence to back that notion up. Talk to me about her as a bowler. Um, I, I mean, I've seen little bits, but I don't like have a dossier on her. What, what other than the fact that she's destroyed Susie in her home? Um, what do <laughs> I need to know? Well, uh, she was the 2021 Emerging Player of the Year across the globe. And she's also, of course, the player of the series in this one. She likes to bowl fast. She drew inspiration from Shoaib Akhtar as a kid. And I don't know if you caught the highlights or not, but she has these really enthusiastic celebrations, like raw emotion. She's not like doing some specific thing. She's just going like, woo, (laughs) which is really, really cute to watch. And, you know, she's got killer mentality. She wants to improve. She idolizes Elise Perry. There's that interview with her and Elise that got really famous when, of course, Pakistan toured Australia. There's a lot to like about her. She's still really young. And I feel like, you know, if you look at Pakistani paces, Diana Beg is probably the one that stands out. Mm. Now we're looking at this young seamer who might take them to another level. And and similarly, Alia Riaz was power hitting her way through the series, right? She hit some fantastic sixes, stepped down the crease and whacked the ball you know, across the fence. Pakistan is a team which barely had a women's team not too long ago. In fact, Jared, in the 90s, when they were trying to form a women's team, that team was put on exit control lists just because they wanted to play cricket. So from that point onwards, you know, 30 years later, now they've won a series or T20S series in New Zealand. They're producing these young stars like Fatma Sana. They've gone leaps and bounds without any sort of infrastructure and even structure because there's no domestic setup as such for these girls. No, exactly. Look, I mean, they're still fighting, you know, mm. uh, it, not not to play the game, but certainly, you know, uh, they're fighting against the system that is not set up for them to succeed mm. in, right? Uh, and and it's incredible. You know, there's that great book. What's, it's got a great name and I've forgotten the name um, about Pakistan women's cricket. Came yeah, in. it recently came out. I think Ayush, someone wrote Jalabi, it. Jalabi, uh, I want to say it's called Jalabi or... Can't can't remember, yeah. but it, it it did create some hype that I remember. Yeah, you read that book and you just realize like we're actually lucky that there is Pakistan women's cricket, right? Mm-hmm. And and to think about that, um, and then have a young fast bowler who I don't know how how old would she be? She's probably what twenty one at best. She can also whack the ball. She can how, hit sixes. How is it possible she has Shoaib Akhtar as, 
as a hero. She must have been like four when he last played. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but uh, you know, YouTube does wonders, uh, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for for these things. But no, I look, I just I think it's great. I'm. I yeah. So she was sorry. She was born in two thousand and one November. She just turned twenty two. And Shoaib last played in the twenty eleven World Cup, so she could have caught him. Yeah, maybe that's possible. Maybe. I remember I remember writing about Meg Lanning once and Meg Lanning, I asked Meg Lanning who her hero was and she said Ricky Ponting. And and then I remember talking to another woman and you know asking uh, who her hero was and she said Meg Lanning. Hmm. And that's the next step, right? Yes. You you, you need to do that and uh hope you know Sanamir is probably already that player to to a uh-huh. couple of Pakistani women coming through. Uh, but you need to create more of those sorts of, uh, you know, that's why representation matters. That That's why those things ultimately matter. But, you know, what a story. I, I mean, the other side of this, it's a bit like when we said, what a story for Ugandan men, not so good mm-hmm. for Zimbabwe men. And we, you know, now it's like, what a great story for um, Pakistan women. What does this say about yeah. New Zealand women? And, and, you know, I think we have been seeing the steady decline of New Zealand women's cricket over a little while maybe they had another golden era like the men did as well i, mm-hmm. I don't know but i don't think they've been relevant and w- relevant is maybe the wrong term but i don't think they've been a force in women's cricket for a very long time now they obviously are still making plays who are good but they don't look like they're going to have the same kind of teams and, and i would assume what is actually happening is that new zealand women's cricket is probably still getting slightly better it's just that other teams are just going you know exponentially past them yeah, we've got Hypercost in the comments as well. He's, of course, answered our question. It's called Unveiling Jazba by That's Ayush it. Putran. Uh, Natasha Huja is also... Between us, that. we almost got that. <laughs> we we got individual <laughs> sounds. We just didn't get the actual words. Yeah, basically. I, I said uh, the first name of the author and uh, Jared ha- said Jazba in his own language. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, still, you know, a fantastic achievement by Pakistan. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see how these uh, girls develop further. Fatma Sana in particular. And uh, over in India, uh, the women's team lost 2-1 to England in the T20I series. Now, of course, England are sturdy opposition. They gave Australia a run for their money in the ashes as well. But India, with their talented squad at home... I feel like they'll be underwhelmed. Yeah, they, they should be disappointed with that. Mm. I do think England's perhaps on a bit of an incline themselves at the, at the moment. Mm-hmm. and so I mean, Sophie Eccleston definitely is. Yeah, so I don't know if losing to them is the end of the world, especially as we, what we saw with the Australian series. However, you know, it's, I was talking to someone about the men's team today and I used the phrase, I'm really annoyed I haven't used this before, but I feel like the men's team, that they're standing on the edge of a dynasty and then just not willing to jump in. And I think women's cricket even more so in India. It's like, do you not know that you could dominate for 20 years? Mm. Just a, like the talent that is over there, once you unlock it and professionalise it, what you could do. Um, and yet they still... I, I don't think they're a, a strong 11. I think they've got really strong players in their women's team, but I don't feel that they're a strong 11 all the way through at the moment. And I think that's, I, I think if you want to beat Australia consistently, you just don't have a choice, right? You just, you have to be a great 11, let alone a strong 11. Hmm. I mean, this is a new era for Indian women's cricket. And, you know, I, I love some of their players. I think Jamima's really good. Shafali Verma is going to be a star someday, right? She's going to be the Sevag of women's cricket, I believe, maybe someday. But uh, yeah. So one I mean, day she's going to end up with a Twitter account only saying centrist dad tweets that she thinks are funny. <laughs> That's a hell of a statement, man. 
<laughs> not that part, definitely not. But uh, there's, you know, lots of promise over there. I just hope that the results start coming as well. Uh, just a final word on women's cricket. Chamari Atapattu, the player of the series in the Women's Big Bash League. She was left unpicked in the WPL draft. Oh, sorry, auction. There's an auction over there. And uh, I just don't get what more she needs to do. Of course, like Danny White got a deal this time. So there's some happy stories over there as well. But Chamari had the best year possible. I mean, you cannot have a better year than that. No. Do you think she's stronger than the players who've been picked to bat top order for other sides? Or I mean, she level? also offers some stuff with the ball, right? You get versatility with Chamari and you get experience. She's been around for a long time. Uh, those yeah. surfaces suit her. Those surfaces I, I, definitely suit I'm her. I'm not saying any of that is not true. I, hmm. I think she's probably more a victim of they don't have deeper squads. Mm. And she's also a victim of India women seems to be able to find top order players and not middle order players. Um, and probably what Danny Wyatt, if that team was picking between her and Danny Wyatt, Danny Wyatt's probably a better fielder, um, you know, runner between wickets, you know, some of the other key skills, maybe you're looking at it from that perspective. I don't know, mm-hmm. but yeah, look, she's unlucky. And um, if if the women's IPL was running the same way the men's IPL was, she'd obviously be in the squad. I, I find it weird that no one's picked her based on the fact that there's a lot of, you know, Western players being picked who mm-hmm. probably will struggle at times with with the, with the ball spinning and everything else, whereas at least we know that is not going to be an issue with her if you yeah. get those kinds of wickets. Um, but she's obvious, like she's a WPL quality player, but we've seen this with the men before, right? We've seen players who probably should have got to go and, you know, there's an influx of international players at that position or they're looking for a middle-order player. Like Annabelle Sutherland um, was, a, was a no-brainer for mm. the Women's Premier League, right, because there aren't well, how many Indian um, middle-order players can bat to the level that she can and are six foot two. I actually don't know how tall she is, but she feels she feels like she's at a very high release point anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, and also, also, I was just watching clips of her brother bowl, and he keeps hitting the splice and getting wickets um, in the big bash as well. But um, uh, you know, so if you, um, you know, that, there's no way you can't pick Annabelle Sutherland, right? You have to have someone like her. Whereas I think with Adapatu, you can probably go, eh, we're we're on the on the fence, and, and you know, we've seen it before. We've seen so many really talented. I mean, Samuel Badri didn't even play ten games in the IPL, did he? Um, yeah. So we've had really strong players who just because of the way that local talent pool um, sort of unfurls itself means you sometimes miss out. But you're right. I mean, you know, if we're saying who is the top 40 most talented women in the world, she's on that list. Yeah. And I mean, you get some leadership qualities with her as well. And I do feel for her. I, I hope that she gets more gigs around the globe and I hope that she continues to score these amount of runs and also pick up wickets because I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge Jamari fan. Uh, Mookie is asking if we're going to be talking about the Australia-Pakistan series tonight. Unfortunately, that's not on the agenda, but uh, I can give you a quick prediction. 3-0 Australia and uh, they better play Rizwan ahead of Sarfaraz or just have Rizwan in the team. I don't understand why this is a topic of contention of whether or not Rizwan should play in Australia series because he's one of your best batters. So, yeah, maybe you can watch some of my other podcasts. I'll be covering this. Right now, we're going to go to Ireland versus Zimbabwe. And uh, Ireland, on their tour of Zimbabwe, has actually defeated them two games to one in the T20I series. And Sikandar Razabat, who we recently conducted a Footmarks podcast on, in the first game, he scored 65, picked up three wickets, and bagged his ninth player of the match award 
in this calendar year which is mm. the most for anyone in 2023 it was i think 7 or 8 when we recorded that podcast so it's amazing how sikandar raza just keeps charting new heights but he copped a suspension in the first game and he couldn't feature in the remaining two games which zimbabwe lost now that tells you a story there doesn't it jared he's a handy cricketer isn't he <laughs> uh, yeah it's interesting also if I'm not mistaken, there's hasn't this series been blacked out and you can't watch it in Ireland or there was hmm. to do with the rights issues as well. Um, I was I, I was a little bit fascinated to watch some of this and um hasn't quite worked out the way that I was hoping to be. Unless they've started broadcasting it, I've missed it now. But yeah, look, Sikander Ross is incredible. Uh, you know, there's no point us talking about him here. We just did a yeah. whole podcast about it. But absolutely he I think he is the difference. Uh, Richard Ngarava took wickets in one of the games, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And we know that he is uh, very, very good as well. And we know that they have a good seam bowling attack, but I don't think their seam bowling attack, as good as it is, can mm -hmm. carry them to multiple wins uh, in a row. But having Sakanda and then also having we talk about we talked about Sam Curran before. You know, mm -hmm. Ryan Burl probably a fringe player for a lot of teams, but Ryan Bell fits so perfectly into the Zimbabwean team because Sikanda Raza is there, right? It yeah. allows them to play off each other. Um, and in the old days, one will bowl off spin and one will bowl leg spin and you get the four overs or the 10 overs um, that way. They're both bowling so well at the moment, you can use both of them. Um, but again, it's that kind of flexibility that Sikanda gives you, right? He can bat as high as four if you need him, but certainly number five or number six without any issue. Um, and the way he's been bowling of recent times, you can you can pro you could, if you had to, you could pencil him in for four overs. They don't do that because of this this Ryan Burl situation. Um, and then you take that out, and they're a team with an okay leg spinner, um, a few decent quicks, but not a lot of batting. They certainly don't have a batter in that lineup that would scare Ireland or other Test playing nations, right? Like you, I think if you go into a game against Zimbabwe, you would probably be thinking. Sikanda's the man. If we can get him cheap, um, then at the very least we can keep the economy down. We might not be able to dismiss the whole team, but we can keep the economy down. Uh, whereas once he gets going, he can score at such a rate that he just sort of terrorizes everyone. Yeah, and Zimbabwe definitely missed him in those uh, two games that they lost. And just before we end this podcast, I uh, just want to talk about Harry Tector, the middle-order batter for Ireland. Uh, he scored 126 runs in this series, which included 48 and 54 in the games that Ireland won. Unsurprisingly, he was awarded the Player of the Series award as well. And uh, according to you, is Harry Tector Ireland's most valuable batting asset moving into the future? I mean, he's got competition with from what? Uh, who? Lockin Tucker is there? Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. Curtis Camphor, maybe as an overall player. As an overall player, player, yes, certainly not not as not as um, a batter alone. <sighs> If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have thought it was laughable to even compare Lorcan and Harry Tector because I would have thought mm -hmm. Harry Tector was just at such a higher level. But mm -hmm. Lorcan just kept getting better and kept getting better that I, I think he's probably now the player I would pin my hopes on mm -hmm. as as being that next level player. But Harry Tector should be a Rassy van der Dussen type mm -hmm. player for Ireland. All three formats you should be able to plug him in. He might bat slightly slower than what you would like at times, but we know that once Harry gets going, you know, he's another big, strong guy. He can smack it around everywhere. Um, he does get stuck. I think he does have to work on that. Like, I think Rassi is – Rassi can get stuck, but Rassi's mm -hmm. 
pretty good at rotating the strike, whereas Harry can get stuck, especially especially if you're talking white ball cricket here. Um, but look, th- those. I mean, if you compare that that those two batting talents to the younger players in Scotland and Netherlands, uh, Namibia, even Zimbabwe, like what they would have to be, what two of the top maybe four players in in batting talent that any of those teams would want to take to start with. And the fact that Ireland have both of them is such a huge advantage, right? You know, Curtis Camper is the sort of player that those other teams have, right? Um, they don't have that Harry Tector. Um, and, and you need Harry Tector, Lorcan Tucker type players so that you can have a base level of runs that your mm. team makes, right? And, yeah. and I think that's the big, big difference for me. Um, but yeah, I think after doubting Lorcan Tucker for ages and he kept getting better, I think I'm now overvaluing Lorcan Tucker. But I think he um, has the ability to have more of an impact, whereas Harry Tector might be a more consistent batter than him. Yep, that's fair enough. Um, I think that wraps it up. Uh, Thank you, everybody who tuned in and commented. We obviously appreciate the support. And of course, follow this channel, subscribe to it, and also subscribe to Jared's other channel. And yeah, we've had record numbers, so yeah, we couldn't be more grateful. But that's it for this week's Uncovered. And we'll catch you once again next week with lots of cricketing discourse. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orajoti Sainapayi and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Social media nightmares keeping you up after you turn out 25 minutes of gold on your podcast? It's time to wake up to Memento FM. They find the best designs for your posts, transforming your videos and podcasts into great social media posts. Join Memento FM today.